Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. This is a special episode of the podcast, the first in which I hope becomes a series of panel discussions on academic topics in sports heritage. Today's discussion is centered on the themes of storytelling, accessibility, and social justice in sports heritage organizations. I released a preview trailer for this episode back in December, which was actually part of a class final project in my recently concluded first semester of grad school. Today's panel consists of Katie Tanner, Museum and Communications Coordinator for the Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame, and Adam Thompson, Director of the World of Little League Museum. I know Katie and Adam through the International Sports Heritage Association, and I appreciate their time and perspective on today's panel. No overtime segment this week, so let's get right to our discussion on storytelling, accessibility, and social justice in sports museums. We'll kind of dive right in by having you introduce yourselves to the audience. So Katie, do you want to start? Sure, yeah. Uh, My name is Katie Tanner. I work at the Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame in Canada, located in, in Halifax. I'm the museum and communications coordinator there. I started as a summer student 13 years ago and been full-time for uh, about nine years now. So Sweet. Adam, what about you? My name is Adam Thompson. I am the museum director at the World of Little League Museum in South Williamsport, Pennsylvania. It is where the uh, Little League World Series is played each year. I started uh, working at the museum as a college student, actually, and um, back in 1999. And so... I was lucky enough to get a full-time position and was able to work in a lot of different roles in the museum. And now I am the uh, museum director. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And I've met both of you through the International Sports Heritage Association. That's a really great group of sports heritage professionals. And I've been getting plugged into that organization. And I would love to start off by talking about what is the role of sports heritage within kind of the broader museum industry? Because as a museum studies student, that's something that We've talked about how there's different aspects of museums of different types, and um, I think I think both of you are pretty involved, obviously in ISHA, but then also in some other organizations too. So, Katie, would you want to start off talking about that topic? Sure. I think a lot of the time there's sometimes a bit of a, a disconnect in the museum world, thinking that that sport is so separate from um, museums and our typical idea of, of cultural and arts institutions. So um, I think that sometimes people think they have a hard time thinking about sports museums as part of that overall heritage community. And that's been something that I've seen even in the studies that are done with like the Canadian Museum Association. They did some great studies on museum impact, but sometimes they kind of put sport and museum as if they were competing factors for people's like recreational time. So it's been it's been good to be part of a sport heritage organization like ISHA that, you know, really ties together the heritage and museum aspect with sport. And then in my own kind of personal um, professional career uh, here in Nova Scotia, I'm the president of the Association of Nova Scotia Museums. So that keeps me really in touch with all of the other um, community, provincial and federal museums in our area and what they're doing and, uh, you know, how our organization really is, is, doing the same things, um, but just from a sport heritage perspective. It's, it's been good to be part of that organization as well. Yeah, that was something that in my kind of intro class for museum studies, we were talking about all different types of museums like art and natural history and what I call regular history or just kind of cultural museums. And I was like trying to relate everything to sports or trying to, that's how I always do any school assignment really, but it's been good to think that way as I get into sports heritage 
Adam, do you have anything to add on that from your perspective? Yeah, one of the things I, I've noticed, so we're a, a sports museum, but we're also kind of dedicated to children. So sometimes sports in general, it's just an easy way to, it's like an easy access for them to maybe explore than other museums at our end. So like when I have a group of kids coming in, I explain what a museum is and then they're all really interested in, you know, little league baseball and softball, but then maybe they will branch out and possibly then go explore other museums as well. So sometimes it's a nice little entry point for especially children to kind of get interested in museums in general. Yeah, that's a really good point too, because sports are such a big part of society in the US and Canada that they're probably playing sports or watching them on TV and the museums can be a big part in that as well. Adam, I'll go back to you on that because you are working with kids often and having these school programs and then hundreds of kids coming over the summer. So what are some ways that your museum engages with the kids to kind of build up that mindset about museums so they can grow up into adolescence and adulthood and still maintain that love for museums and learning? Even like for us, like when our school tours, um, you know, we, we try to make sure that we they get a guided tour. So they're actually listening to usually me or one of my uh, employees kind of explaining. So we're not just explaining like, oh, this is a baseball. We're also explaining the idea of what, what a museum gallery is, kind of really just educating them about the museums in general. We've recently kind of created a fun little, you know, not every child's going to go through a tour, a, a guided tour of the museum. So we created like fun little activity packets for the kids to kind of go through each room and explore, find things in the museum. So they're not just walking through a gallery very quickly so they can get to our running area so they can see how fast they run. There actually is um, this little activity packlet that actually encourages them to explore the museum a little bit more too. So they're actually reading the captions. They're taking the time inside the museum. So hopefully then when they get older, they'll kind of do that when they go to other museums as well. Katie, what about the Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame and their their kids programming? We've had an education program for quite a while uh, that's free to students in the province, um, both to come to the Hall of Fame and we would go and visit schools and do presentations there as well. And we've been very lucky to have so many engaged um, inductees with our organization who participated as guest speakers with that program. We did change things up a bit uh, with COVID and also with our, our facility being closed for renovations. We've done a lot more virtual lately and it's actually been really successful. We call them hero chats and we have either inductees or current athletes, um, people in Nova Scotia who, who've done something impressive with sport come to speak to kids through a platform like Zoom and our CEO will uh, interview them, but he uses the questions that the students submit beforehand. Uh, and there could be a hundred different classes watching at once uh, and he'll try and pick a good a mix of questions that were submitted. It's really great to see the conversation led by the questions that the kids have. They ask really great questions and just their general curiosity, but sometimes they think of things that we wouldn't even think to ask. And, uh, and that's a great way for them to learn more about, you know, sport heritage, but through someone that that's, you know, right there in front of them speaking live about it at the time. So that's one of our most recent kind of adaptations for, for virtual stuff. Yeah, that's really neat because you're kind of letting the kids kind of create the program too. And that was something that we talked about a lot in my classes as well was 
this topic of co-creation or like co-collaboration with groups, whether they're children or like other community organizations. So do either of you have any experience with that or kind of making a program and working with a certain population to do it? It's actually something I want to explore. Obviously, since 2020, the industry's right. kind of, you know, we're still trying to find our ground. So, but I really, since we are a children's museum, for the most part, we really want the children to be involved with our, our programs. Now, outside of just the visitors that come in, like we recently um, updated our education packets for our school students instead of having me create it because I'm not, I didn't go to school for education. Um, I don't know anything about how to create anything like that. So um, we actually had some local uh, college students actually help out with that. So who were all ed ed education majors specifically for ed uh, elementary education. So that was a nice little collaboration because they could also test it out on some of the students that they were working with. Katie, do you have anything to add? We've, you know, similarly tried to to work with, um, you know, local students. Also, we were lucky to be able to tap into both the sport and the heritage side in our community. So we've we've had some great collaborations with other um, sport governing bodies in Nova Scotia uh, and other museums and heritage groups uh, to do various projects. Right now, we're we're actually kind of coming to a point where we have to really work on um, community relationships. Um, in order to pursue our, our upcoming projects. We're trying to expand the types of stories that we tell in the museum and uh, the representation that we have for different, uh, different athletes and different perspectives. So that's uh, gonna be a challenge to go out there and make those community connections and, and try and find some new collaborations. Um, we've been lucky to uh, have the Association of Nova Scotia Museums do some of that work already. And they've held a few community consultation sessions uh, with different community groups. And we've attended those just to listen and learn and, and see where we could collaborate in the future. So hopefully we'll have some new collaborations coming up. Yeah, that's exciting. And something that blows my mind is the amount of curriculum and like standards educationally that play into even sports museums where they're learning about STEM topics or they're learning about history or it's all centered around the curriculum that we, they would be learning. And like when you're a kid, you don't have any concept of that in any subject, but especially if you're on like a field trip or something to a museum, um, it's a really cool way to, and several folks have talked about this on the podcast, kind of justify the field trip or the expenses to administrators. And so it's really cool that you guys are working with community partners and college students and teachers to be able to Put together those programs so they can go back to their principals and say, hey, we're studying these things and the, the Sports Hall of Fame nearby can can help us with that in these ways. So I, I really do like that. And I think that's a neat, neat aspect of education in sports museums that isn't talked about a ton. Why don't we kind of talk about um, storytelling now and, and having diverse perspectives? And I like how you put that, Katie, you guys are continuing to work on that. And I know Adam does that as well from kind of a a global perspective. So I'll ask you, Adam, from like a, a globalization perspective with so many different cultures coming to Williamsport each summer, um, how do you all tell the story of Little League as such a worldwide organization? Yeah, so we're really lucky because it's not just, you know, something in the United States, it's from all around the world. So we want to make sure everybody's represented at our museum. And so 
we try to, and luckily Little League International has people who work at all these regional centers across the world. So they can supply stories to us that are interesting that we can somehow represent inside the museum. We also want to make it easier for the players that are coming to visit the museum. You know, they're from now 20 different teams come. So there's 10 international teams and we have like little audio guides. So these the children from Japan can actually come into the museum and understand everything that's going on. We actually now have some stuff from Japan because then we talk to their, their um, teams and like, is there anything interesting you want to put in? So like, for instance, we have like a great good luck charm that they, the teams from Japan make each year. And it's a great story and how they make it. And I, I'm not going to go into all the details about it because we don't have enough time, but it, it's kind of a cool thing. And then what happens for our kids in the United States is they get to see something from another country and understand, you know, and it might be something like, oh, we relate to that too. We do that here as well. And it's a really kind of a great way to, for these kids to really kind of get to know each other and learn each other's customs and cultures, which is just kind of, it's a really fun thing to see during the Little League World Series. Yeah, that's so important, even when you're 10, 12 years old, to really meet somebody from another culture and have a conversation or kind of relate to each other about baseball or about like a certain ritual before game day or something. That's, that's really neat. It's really amazing to watch how quickly, because I think it's, they all love the game of baseball or softball. And then Mm -hmm. that's like the nice little entry point. And then they have their own little area where they kind of are during the league world series. And it's kind of like an Olympic village and it's so fun to watch them interacting with each other and with technology now too in the past they used to write little pen pals when you write letters to each other but now they can instantly whatever the cool social media is right now i'm not sure what it is but they're probably on it and they're connecting right away so yeah katie for you all up in canada what's been the value of the international sports heritage association or maybe other groups to be involved with other canadian sports museums and then um, organizations in the U.S. and other places in the world as well. I mean, it's always great to to see what everyone else is doing all around the world and ha- and the similarities that you find between our work and and between the stories. I mean, in Canada, I mean, this is this is a big um, you know topic in the states too. But in Canada, there's been a lot of focus on making sure that the indigenous stories are getting told. Now, a lot of them were kind of excluded from your typical um, museums before. Uh, just with the way that museums you know, developed years ago. So we're trying to make sure that um, as we redo our exhibits, we're, there's, there's a big Indigenous connection with the development of hockey, things like other sports like lacrosse. Um, but we want to make sure it's not just about in the past and we're still um, talking about that culture because it's a vibrant living culture now. So we're lucky to be hosting the North American Indigenous Games in Nova Scotia this summer. Um, so we're really hoping it's going to be a great opportunity to see some of the young Indigenous athletes play and and learn more about what their their current um, sports and, and interests are and, and what that experience is like for them. I think that the topic that co- comes up in all of our organizations, that's a great place to start our storytelling is the impact that sport has on people you know, from all different cultures and then the impact that their cultures have had on sport around the world and in this in the location that we're telling the story. So we're hoping to to find as we move forward. 
Yeah, that's a really neat event. I never heard of the North American Indigenous Games, but I'm going to do some research and pass that along to my roommate, who's also a big sports fan and studying Indigenous studies. So I'll have to let him know about that. And I also think it goes back to who tells the story as well, because I think it's important for museums, which are traditionally um, like white institutions, to tell these diverse stories in conjunction with and using the stories in technology or in other forms of people in the diverse populations that we're telling the stories of. So I think that's another big part of storytelling in museums is like who's telling the story. So do either of you have any thoughts about um, that topic or, or things you've learned over your time in sports heritage? Yeah, I know like on our end, we would prefer that the people who are involved tell their story. So for instance, um, we have a story about a team from South Carolina. They were an all African-American team. None of the teams from the Little Leagues in South Carolina would play the team. And it's kind of now a fairly famous story. But then we tell this story. And I think it's one thing to hear me tell this story. But then I have a little audio moment where I can push a button and you actually hear one of the players tell this story. I just think it's a little bit more powerful coming from them. And the same with our um, half half the population wasn't allowed to play Little League up until 1974, meaning mm-hmm. women were not allowed to play or girls. Like I said, it's one thing to hear it from me, but when I hit a, bu- a button, you can hear from one of the young ladies who was one of the reasons Little League was able to expand to women hearing her story. It's just a little bit more powerful. It means something a little bit more. So, you know, luckily, like if if we can get the story and record a story from somebody who is involved then we'll do everything in our power to make sure that happens. That's great. And that that ties into technology as well. And I know, Katie, you presented about a certain aspect of technology that your museum uses up in Green Bay at the um, ISHA conference in September. So you could either talk about that if you want, or kind of talk more generally about technology and how it helps tell those stories. Yeah, the, the technology that I presented on um, is a beacon uh, proximity sensor technology that works with the mobile app. Um, so that visitors can get content related to the exhibit that they're standing in front of as they move throughout a space, and they can get that on their personal mobile device. One way that that talks about how technology is impacting how we how we tell stories and how we have um, exhibits in our museum is is that now you know it's allowing us to share a lot more content. So you have the level of what you see in front of you, and then those additional um, video or audio clips that you can have access to. Um, really add to to what you would see in, in text and pictures and artifacts. And uh, it allows people to, to also, there's a lot of options now. People can access things, like I said, on their own device, which makes it a lot more accessible. Another thing that technology, I think, uh, really allows us to do is with those bits of, of history or bits of the story where there isn't necessarily something super tangible to have for it, maybe there isn't an artifact available to tell that story, being able to have you know, have a, a recording, an oral history or a video about it can really bring that to life when you don't have all of the the physical things to tell the story with. For sure. You mentioned accessibility, and I, that was another big part of my classes and then my work at the Art Museum at the University of Kansas. It's all about how how can we tell these stories in a way that everyone can understand, everybody can relate to, everybody can like physically access or digitally access to. So what are some accessibility efforts that you've either seen other museums undergo or your own museums and organizations do over the past few years as accessibility has become 
um, more and more important and more and more um, vital to what museums do. We uh, redid our museum, renovated it, and it was about 10 years ago now, which is kind of crazy to think was 10 years ago. But And I know Katie and their uh, they're renovating right now and creating something new. So what was nice about that was when we were built in 1982, certain things just weren't thought about. Um, the height of certain exhibits, because you have people who uh, may be in chairs and can, can't look up, or um, even uh, closed captioning, like mm-hmm. all that stuff is now uh, created. So anytime we create anything, we try to think of any possible thing to make sure everybody has uh, a way to access it even with languages now like i mentioned before with our audio tour guides we want to make sure the children from you know mexico still have the same experience that the kids from kansas are going to have but it is uh it, it changes each like we'll have somebody who will come into the museum and we'll notice oh they're struggling with this like the most recent thing we've noticed was um sensory issue- issues you know we have children who struggle in places and we're a, we're a loud museum and so especially in our running area kids are yelling and screaming and it can even for me it can be a little bit jarring so we want to find ways that we can maybe help those kids as well so it, it's something that changes quite a bit each year we find something new Katie, since you all are kind of actively working on creating new exhibits i'm curious about like if you're working with exhibit designers or vendors or whoever to make accessibility part of the kind of the starting place because I think often it's like tacked on at the end or something that can be brought out even more in the forefront. So I'm curious if you have a perspective on that topic of accessibility. Yeah, we it's definitely something that we've been considering since the early stages of our, our plans for renovations. We're still just uh it's still our team that's currently the the lead um exhibit planners on this. But uh Working with our our um, general contractor and the architect, I um, mean, from the very beginning, our biggest issue was our space um, didn't have its own elevator. Uh, we used to have to use uh, one from the adjacent arena, and it was very out of the way. So uh, we, it, it's kind of interesting because it had to start with building around where is this elevator going to go, and uh, and then applying for. Funding for things like that really opens your eyes to they start giving you these checklists. Well, do you have all these other things? If somebody comes in from the elevator now, can are all of the walkways big enough for them to move through? Um, is there an accessible washroom? How are they going to open the doors? You know, are the all the safety systems in place? So it, it did get us thinking about it from the very beginning. And now just to like echo some of the things Adam said, now we're thinking, oh, is this exhibit visible to someone in a wheelchair? What's the height of this kiosk going to be? So yeah, just from that one one you know major detail of having to put in the the elevator, it really got us thinking about everything else. And like Adam said, there's there's so many other accessibility pieces with um, you know visual and hearing impaired and and sensory issues. So we've certainly been looking at all of those, attending a few webinars to learn more about what other museums have done and what they found successful. So trying to incorporate as much of it as we can. Yeah, that's been a big part of my internship at the art museum. And I'm glad that like student staff and interns are able to attend the accessibility sessions that the rest of the museum staff does, because that's been very eye opening to me, just even about like some of the language I've used or um, alt text and how that can help digital accessibility. So some of that has been really eye opening for me um, as an intern at the art museum on campus. So I think we can continue to talk about this 
because that's a form of diversity as well is um, forms of ability and accessibility too. So what are some of the ways that you all think about diversity, whether that's terms of inductees for your museums or outreach to various populations, um, telling a, a diverse set of stories, because it's not just one perspective of of sports, especially at your all's museums, which are multi-sport or multicultural in Adam's case. So um, I think that's a really big topic, obviously, and we don't have time to like solve the issues of museums and diverse stories. But um, what are your all's perspectives on that? Adam, do you want to start? I know like when it comes to uh, like one of the things that we're kind of focused on is a lot of people think, you know, literally they just think it's baseball and it's boys. And so like, we're lucky we're working with it. I work within a larger organization. And so for instance, we're um, currently have a program called Girls with Game and it really highlights girls playing both baseball and softball. And we want to make sure those stories are told throughout the museum then as well. So that's been a kind of a big focus for for me and and trying to get those stories out there because I would say like ninety percent of the people who do come in just think baseball and then they go, well, girls allowed to play this. Well, of course they are, but they just don't think that you know the stories aren't out there. So our role within the organization is to help tell some of those stories the best that we can and try to get those stories out. I want to correct myself a little bit. And when I asked that question, I made it sound like that just Adam's museum talked about mul- multiple cultures, but I'm sure Katie's does as well up in Nova Scotia. And that's another part of it too, with indigenous communities or various types of um, populations too. So um, Katie, how do you all think about diversity up in Nova Scotia? I think one of the biggest uh, things that we've been thinking about besides our exhibits and storytelling is our, um, so we have uh, an induction process. We do an induction every year for Hall of Famers. We have a, a pretty transparent selection process and it's it's all um, publicly submitted nominations. Generally, though, those publicly submitted nominations give a, a pretty good a selection of geographical representation from within the province, different sports, male and female. Um, but uh, there's been certain things, especially with Indigenous nominations, it's been difficult because there's barriers that people face at different times that didn't allow them to participate at the same level that other people did. Um, and that can be difficult when you're comparing people's achievements in order to get a nomination to move forward. So we're looking at that, how that plays into the process and how, um, you know, we can, we can look at our nomination and selection process again, because we want to make sure that, um, that there's stories that are, you know, people and stories that could be recognized that aren't being overlooked because uh, they just, it's too difficult of a, it's too hard of a competition against what other people were able to participate in and achieve at the same time period that, that that person um, you know, was, was doing their athletic competition. So that's kind of a, outside of the exhibits, the, the induction and, and selection process has been something that we've received a lot of questions about. So, you know, we want to look into that. We have so many great talented athletes in Nova Scotia that we have seen a pretty diverse, you know, group come in every year, people of, of different abilities and, and backgrounds as far as who's inducted. And luckily that just seems to happen pretty naturally through who's nominated by the public. But there's always, you know, we always want to make sure that there's not gaps, that things aren't being overlooked. So yeah, we, we have like the Hall of Excellence, which it's a little bit different than like a Hall of Fame. We want to make that as diverse as possible because these are 
supposed to be role models for children. And so like one of our problems was girls weren't allowed to play until 1974. So you didn't really have a big pool to pull from when the Hall of Excellence was created. So, cause there just wasn't enough players and it's not based on like how great of a player you are, I should point out. It's like what you do now. And so we do try to find, our goal is to find people from all walks of life that are represented in there. So you might have an astronaut, you're going to have, you know, um, a football player, a baseball player, a teacher, you try to get, and we try to make sure that we're diverse, both, you know, racially as well to make sure everybody's kind of represented because I think it's nice for people who visit the museum to see people that represent them. I think that's an important thing that we kind of overlook sometimes. Representation is key in any museum, really, but even sports museums with their kind of niche topics and niche conversations. Like we said earlier, they're still tackling the same same issues of social justice or racism or diversity. And do you all have any other specific examples of ways that you all have either seen kind of social justice weaved into sports museums and storytelling or something that um, your organization does? It's it's an interesting question. And I was actually, we're part of a pilot project for a museum assessment program in Nova Scotia right now. And a big, a big question or topic as part of that assessment is, is how should museums uh, interact with social movements, with, you know, different causes, different things that are the, you know, current social topics at the moment. I don't know if we've we've come to a definite answer on that yet, other than museums have to decide uh, how they want to interact with that, with those topics and and how they want to talk about those difficult stories. I'm trying to, I don't know if they have an exact example at this moment. Um, But uh, I mean, something that that's a, it's not up there with like big social change movement necessarily but you know as a as a sports museum even though it's not necessarily part of our purpose statement to to focus on healthy lifestyle or or physical activity we're more about the heritage side of it I mean it's just such a natural fit with sports so we do try and encourage you know those um, physically active lifestyle and healthy living with a lot of our programs and we kind of expand into that area because it's something that we're just you know we feel passionate about and wanting to get kids active and and keep, you know, keep kids healthy is something that a little bit outside of the typical heritage mandate, but it, I feel like it really does have a place in sports museums for sure. Yeah. I know that's a big part of little leagues programming just kind of overall, I believe is just healthy boys and girls and softball and baseball can be a part of that as well. So yeah. that's a, that's a really neat thing. And I, I like how you put that Katie, cause we're, it's hard in a podcast interview or on a assessment to, solve these big questions, but I appreciate both of you all having these conversations with me. And I hope to have more of them on the podcast with different panelists and different types of museums and halls of fame. So keep keep looking out for those opportunities. And one of my last questions is kind of along those lines too, because I think sports museums in particular are often an escape for people and often they just want to kind of walk through and reminisce about their own little league days or see um, Sidney Crosby's artifacts up in Nova Scotia. But are there stories that have elicited like criticism from visitors or they were like, they stepped over a line that was there in people's minds that, Oh, sports museum shouldn't talk about that. Or I don't know. I'm curious about that as somebody in these classes, but also interested in, sports which is more of an escape in some ways but not not every way so 
I don't know if I asked that question very well, but I'm curious if you all have topics or um, things you want to bring up about that. We've been, I've been very lucky that nobody's really been upset by anything that we've kind of told kind of going back to even that last question. Like, so we tell the story of girls not being allowed to play little league. So we could, you know, easily not tell that story because it's, it's not necessarily, you know, makes us look great back then, but um, in order for us to kind of continue to evolve, we have to tell where we were before. Mm -hmm. So we can't talk about what we're doing now without talking about the past. So, you know, there was a concern like, telling that story, are we going to get people rushing back? But nobody really has done that. I always kind of look at it as like, maybe we're an entry point for some of these students when they hear that. Like we're not telling them everything they need to know about the women's rights movement, but maybe that's an entry point for them. Kind of like how Little League is an entry point for uh, other things. And whether it's the, you know, the racial issues back in, you know, the South with that team, I'm not going into everything that, you know, that's there's, that'd be unpacking a lot. So, but maybe we are that kind of entry point, but I've been very lucky that nobody's complained. And actually we've gotten some compliments on the fact that we're not necessarily hiding from, you know, those, those stories that need to be told. So luckily, like I said, I've been very lucky. I know other museums, it might be a little bit more of a struggle. Yeah. That's really good news, Adam. Katie, do you have anything to add on that topic? think we've had any pushback against like yeah what kinds of stories we've been telling but I mean people are people are passionate about sports and they're passionate about what they believe to be the best of a particular sport or you know a particular um, type of competition so because we induct our induction like it's a bit different than Adam's with you know ours is based on on merit and being the best um, in your field there's always going to be some debate from the public or, or people who have strong opinions. And, and a good example of that is actually what is a sport. So we're as, as you know, more and more different kinds of competition get added to even the Olympics, we're going to have those conversations about people feeling really strongly what, what they think is, you know, an incredible athlete and whether that even fits into what's considered sport. So yeah, when you're, when you're running an annual induction and taking public nominations for things like that, there's no shortage of, um, debates to be had on those things. Right. And that's why we love sports, right? Is arguing about <laughs> who should be inducted and, and why. So that's, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that, but what's kind of the next frontier of sports heritage? That's kind of a vague question, but you all are both really involved in ISHA and in um, some local museum organizations. So I'm curious about not even in the sports heritage realm, but just in museums in general, what are you all talking about? And um, I know we're talking about some of these things in my classes too, as emerging museum professionals, but I'm curious, like the the next horizon for sports heritage or museums in general, what are you all hearing? I think the biggest thing that we're still kind of struggling with and dealing with is, you know, the, the pandemic that happened and Right. And that impact, and I think most of us are still feeling that impact right now, um, whether it was issues with our staffing, losing staff members, or people just not ready to come visit museums yet. So there is still this kind of like unknown that we're still kind of struggling with. But I think at the same time, we've been, it gave us all a chance to embrace technology a little bit more whether it was creating virtual exhibits. I think what we realized is, yes, we have these buildings that people want to come visit, but we also have these great stories that people can't come to visit our museum. 
you know, this is not accessible. They might live in another part of the world and the idea of coming here unless they play in the Little League World Series. So I think that there's, I think we're going to see, obviously, I think it's important to see the, the buildings and the objects. It's very, you know, it's great to see. But at the same time, though, I think you're, you're going to see a, the new way of telling stories virtually, which is going to expand even more and more to make sure that everybody can kind of get the chance to learn about the histories of all of our organizations. So, Yeah, that's great, Adam. Katie, what about you? Um, I think that just thinking of museums as more of a community space um, and service to the community and a hub where people can come together for different kinds of activities is, is a direction that we've been moving in and away from museums just being these more stagnant kind of gallery spaces. So yeah, just in the heritage world in general, in order to stay relevant and to, to you know keep that community support to offer more to the community than just your traditional um, museum gallery space and and to have more than that. Yeah, that's a great point and something that was talked about a lot in my coursework this past semester, and that'll continue to be a big part of my career and everyone's career that works in museums too. So thank you both so much. That was all of the topics that was on my list. So if there's anything that you all want to say or, or plug or talk about your museum, I'd love for you all to share where people can learn more about your organization. Adam, why don't you start? You can find us at www.littleleaguemuseum.org. We are currently working. It's a little bit of a slower time right now for us. Um, So we're kind of working on updating some new exhibits and uh, getting ready for hopefully a very busy season coming up. But hopefully we're also going to be expanding a little bit more of our digital stories as well. So feel free to visit that website to get more information. It's exciting. What about you all up in Nova Scotia, Katie? We're just moving on with our, our renovations. It's a huge project. So we hope to have a whole new Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame uh, by the end of this year. So we're pushing forward with our, our capital campaign and all of the planning that has to go into the new design. But we're also still running our, our programs as best we can uh, without a facility. So we've still got education programming, still um, taking nominations for induction and uh, all of those fun activities. So you can find us at nsshf.com. It's a terrible acronym to have to to say because no one (laughs) can ever understand what I'm saying, but as a Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame, so nsshf.com. And we're on on all those social media platforms too. Sweet. And I've interviewed Adam for the podcast as well. And then Katie's coworker, Shane, from the Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame too. So if people want to learn more about organizations. Um, you can check those episodes out too. But thank you so much for your time, Katie and Adam, and for your perspective and sharing these stories. I think it's really important to have these conversations from a sports heritage perspective and how they tie in with the larger heritage world or museum world too. So um, thank you both so much. Thanks. Thank you. As both Katie and Adam just shared, you can find their organizations online and on social media. I'll link to those pages for the Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame and World of Little League Museum in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, Katie and Adam, for a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you listening to episode 27 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a sports fan in your life. Thanks in advance. I look forward to continuing to have important sports heritage conversations on Hallowed Ground. Until next time, sports fans.